it's going to be really fun. Um, we've got, it's basically a whole giant camp on the peninsula next to Ponderosa State Park. And uh, we, there's RV spots, there's, I think there still might be one cabin with electricity. I got to look at our numbers, but there's cabins with and without electricity. There's spots for your tent. And we're basically charging just 25 bucks per person over four. So your little kids don't, you don't have to pay for it. And that's just because we have the cost of the camp and then we're doing three meals together. We're doing Saturday night, Sunday night, and then Monday morning meals together. There's a large like commercial kitchen that uh, we'll, we have use of. You can store your food in their storage. So it'll be a lot of fun. Marge is raising her hand. I want, I want to restart the time if I'm answering questions. Uh, you can pay when you get there. Just bring a check for me. Um, we c don't do a donation because it's not a donation, and you can't get a tax refund for that. Okay, so it's a separate thing. Bring a check particularly for camp. All right, okay, new time. Whew, all right, now uh, it's, it's been, uh, I haven't preached the last four weeks, and it's been nice to have a little time off, and I've been doing a lot of reading and thinking and prepping for um, this upcoming new school year that's starting. Um, been doing a lot of, we just uh, added Bob and Holly as elders, so we've been meeting and talking about the future. And over our camp out weekend, we're going to have a couple of talks that are really geared around what's next for us at Redemption Hill. Um, what are some things that we think God is calling us to? What are some things that we're going to hope to um, to change about how our community lives as a community? So make sure if you can at all possible be there. We'll record the sessions, but it's going to be a really good time over Labor Day weekend. So we have finished month seven of the whole story. We've been walking through the Bible this year, and... It's been really rich. It's been great to dive into stories that we wouldn't normally hit week in and week out. Um, it was nice hearing from uh, our four speakers the last four weeks and get different perspectives on the way to approach the Bible. And we're most of the way through the Old Testament. We just have four, four weeks, I think, left of the Old Testament, so we're getting there. Um, but let's, let's just remember why we're doing it, okay? We're not doing this so that you'll be Bible scholars you won't be after a year of just, you know, one book a week, okay? So if you were hoping to be a Bible scholar by the end, we're not going to get you all the way there. Um, but we started with this premise, and the premise is that if our main goal is to become a community who are discipled in the way of Jesus, that's what we're trying to do is to shape our community in the way of Jesus. We should know what he said in the Bible, uh, we should know what God said about Jesus and how he fits into history. We spent a lot of time working through the Old Testament, the history, the law, the wisdom, the prophets, from Eden to Noah, from Abraham to Egypt, the desert to the kingdom, and now into exile. And, and we've seen God reveal himself in history. He's spoken directly. He's spoken through visions and through prophets, through judges and kings. And we've seen him work through beggar refugees and consort queens and murderous prophet princes and wee little shepherd kings. God likes to do things in unexpected ways. And we've seen that God is doing this big overarching project. And that's what the Bible's really all about, is him pursuing this ultimate purpose to reconcile and take all of creation that has been alienated to him through sin and reconcile it to himself. Everybody on earth, 
and all the stuff on earth. God wants to set it right, to bring justice, to set all things right. So book after book, we've seen traces and glimpses of this hoped-for Savior, the one who comes bringing justice and mercy, a righteous reign of the benevolent king who takes up the cause of the weak, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the despised. Our Savior is coming. And the story is about how that's unfolding, both in our history and even today. And this week, we're going to slow down a little bit. And rather than working through another book of history or prophecy or wisdom or law, we arrive at the Psalms. And if you've ever read through the Psalms, it feels a little out of place in the rest of the Bible. There's no other song books in the Bible. Um, Song of Solomon's like an epic erotic poem, but it really doesn't fit within the, the same sort of thing that Psalms is. Psalms is a book that's supposed to teach us primarily the language of God, which is the language of, of worship. And so it's this book that's not about history, but it's about how people in history have responded to God through song and poem. It, it's a hymn book to learn how to worship God. And for those of you, I, I know that many of you have probably done like a reading plan along the way where you read like three hymns a day and one proverb because like it's a way to break it up over the course of a month and it kind of works out that way. And so some of you have really dove into the Psalms and it feels really familiar, um, but it's a different kind of a book than the rest of the Bible. It's true. Okay? Even though it's a response of humans to God rather than God speaking to humans, everything about Psalms is given to us as a way of understanding how we relate with God. It's still God disclosing himself generously to humanity, but it's from the perspective of people. They're asking God for help. They're complaining to God about what he has done and what he hasn't done. It has lofty language of exaltation. It has language of betrayal, of accusation, and of heartache. The Psalms isn't quite what you expect. Every once in a while, um, if you follow like uh, Christian blogs or you're in social media, you'll have like a, an old white pastor get on there and talk about how these modern worship songs, they're, they're too much about us. Have you ever seen these like blog posts and these videos where John MacArthur gets up and he says, this is why we sing hymns. And he, he like tells us all about how the good old hymns were the only way that we could really worship God because they were about God, they weren't about us. And I, I want to say that I don't think that those guys have read the Psalms. I think that they really have not seen what the songbook of God's people has looked like over time. In most modern songs, look much more like the Psalms and actually draw from the Psalms much more heavily than some of the older songs did that were built into the, to the hymn books of the late 19th and early 20th century. Because the Psalms have this breadth and this width of the way that we relate to God that's different than how we think of worship. So what we're going to see today is that more than ever, the Psalms speak to our condition. But first, I want to pull back, and I'm going to give you guys three to five minutes 
Um, I'm, I'll keep track of the time on the back now that I have a timer. Uh, but I want, I want you to ask these two questions. And I, Do we have it up there? Yeah, there we go. Okay. So here's the two questions in groups of three to five that I want you to ask because I think that these are vital and also really hard to define. I don't want you to think surface. I want you to think deep like what is worship and how is worshiping Yahweh different than worshiping other stuff? Okay? Like what makes this thing special and what does it include? Okay? Three to five minutes, go, and then we'll share. We need some, like, deliberation music or something, you know, like. A <laughs> little, little Jeopardy, yeah, that'd work. couple minutes left.
All right, time to share your group work with us. So what is worship? How was how worshiping diff- Yahweh different than worshiping other stuff? Ready, set, go. You can share for yourself or for other people. You can share your idea as someone else's too. Yeah. Oh, hold on, hold on. We can't hear you, Ernie, because people are talking. There are people talking over you. Yeah, talk louder. Talk, talk loud enough my dad can hear you, okay? Okay, so worship is what we do here in connecting with God and in action throughout our weeks. Okay, all right. It's on the board right there. (laughs) Bob. For the podcast. (laughs) I repeated your journey. You're fine. So it's like <clears throat> it's something that happens internally in your like posture direction, like like you're setting your feeling towards God. Okay. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that. Okay. Okay.
So there's like a difference in our relationship with one another rather than our relationship with God in, in our the way that we worship. Eric. Yeah. All right. Well, so uh, there's lots of different ways of answering this question. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, there's, we put a lot into this word. We basically lump almost everything we do into this word. And so understanding it, I think, is, is more important. There's kind of that, the etymological or like where the word comes from. It means to ascribe worth. So you look at something and you say, here's what it's worth, and I'm going to extol its virtue by demonstrating what it's worth. And so worship is speaking aloud the, the value of something and also living as if or bringing our worship in value to it. So we take our lives or our money or our time and we ascribe worth by demonstrating it with how we act. There's kind of the descriptive way of thinking about it. So uh, we, we, look at, we look at how we worship, and we describe what worship is by how we worship. And there's lots of different ways that that looks like. It looks like singing. It looks like words. It looks like um, speaking or praying or literally doing anything with the intention of bringing honor. So almost every action can be done with worship. It's like an adverbial sort of action. It's a, it's a way that we do things rather than something that we do itself. So in, in some ways, worship has come to mean something and everything, and in some ways, nothing all at once. It's this kind of nebulous term of like, what is worship? And we're going to kind of sit on the edges of worship at the beginning, and we're going to surround it, and then we're going to kind of get to the center of it as we talk. Um, for some of you, I think, like Bob said, you imagine it's this feeling you get when you turn towards God and recognizing just how different he is from us. When you, when you turn your eyes on God and remember what he's done or remember how he's created or are amazed, maybe when you're up in the mountains and you look on a beautiful vista and you're just overwhelmed by the beauty and the expansiveness of creation and there's something in you that cries out something like thank you or wow. And both of those are the beginning of worship. Um, and all these are, are ways of describing worship and kind of circling the essence of the world, but we're, of the word. But we're going to take a look at this book of worship, the Psalms, and see what worship really is. And, but we're going to do it in light of Jesus. Um, we talked about the beginning of this journey that he's our interpretive matrix. Everything we do is in light of who Jesus is, what he's doing, and how he's bringing about this salvific plan for reconciliation of all things. And fortunately, Jesus quoted the Psalms all the time. Like the New Testament is just littered with hundreds and hundreds of allusions and uses of the Psalms. It's a rich treasure trove of, of ways that Jesus saw the Psalter as the language of worship and how, how those words were on his lips and on his mind. That's what shows up when he speaks is these psalms. So, so a psalm is a Greek word, and it means literally a song sung or plucked. Like it's, it's the verb to pluck. And so it comes from this, the first instrument that was ever created that we know of on earth was literally a, a stomach of an, of an animal that was stretched out and tightened to a point where it made a pleasurable sound. That's it. 
Like that was the beginning of music was to pluck an animal's stomach stretched out. And that's the, where we get the word psalm. And so the piano and the guitar and the harp, these are like ancient instruments of ways that we've come to make music. And in Hebrew, the words for poetry are ode, which is where we literally get the word ode or song. Um, so, so why is, we, we talked about, all you guys talked about worship, and none of it had to do with music. Is that an overreaction in our, in our churches, in our, in our minds? None of you talked about songs when you talked about worship, but every single one of the psalms themselves which is this book of worship, start with a song of, a psalm of, an ode to. Why is music such a vital part of this worship thing? Well, I've thought a lot about this. Um, First is music is beautiful in itself. It literally is the way that God made us to respond to things that evoke emotion. Beauty is about primarily emotion. And so when things are beautiful, what they do is they break down. Have you ever stood before an incredible painting and just been, like, stuck there? You can't move, and all of a sudden it feels like your, your chest is ripping open with feeling that you didn't even know was there as you take in a masterpiece. Or maybe you've listened to a song, and, and you're sitting in your car, and you're at a red light, and you look over, and the person next to you can see you just like with tears streaming down your eyes because this music has opened you up. Music is a part of the way that God gets to the deepest parts of us that do the worshiping. So music is a vital part of worship because of what it does to us. There... If you've ever read any anthropologists or scientists try to talk about the purpose of music in the world, it gets into some fuzzy, weird places, man. Like, for some reason, like this 440, like, diatonic scale is um, something that's written into us. And so when we hear these, these sounds modulate in a certain way, it evokes something deep inside of us. That's supernatural. There's no real reason why we need it because we have vocalizations that don't require tone. As humans, we're not like the birds of the field who sing to share information. Singing is completely superfluous to the way that we communicate to one another. It's beautiful, so it reaches down and it transforms our hearts. Singing is also a deep part of the way that we remember. Now, it's, it's part of... I was thinking this week, like our memories are like shaped by the soundtracks of the different eras of our life, okay? So I want you to think about yourself and that very first song that you remember hearing, okay? Do you got it in your head? Can, can, can you remember it? Like something really early. I, I have this, this real clear memory of an eight track of John Denver and my mom's big old caprice. Like, like there's just like this this moment, and Rocky Mountain High is singing in the background, and it defines a moment of my life. Uh, in, in junior high and high school, it was grunge rock and West Coast hip-hop. Uh, it's the reason why we still pay $100 to listen to music that was written 30 years ago, because when we show up at the stadium to hear the music, it, it opens up our memories. 
it opens up these places that we don't have access to without the soundtracks of those times. Um, it, it takes you back to places that are important that you will remember. And so music is a part of the way that God puts into place our history. Um, I've got, as I was thinking about this, I've got just deep memories of like at church camp, singing audio adrenaline with my friends, dancing and laughing and getting rowdy around a campfire, like moments that can't be captured without the memory of the song itself giving space to it. Um, they evoke emotion, and that emotion gets tied to these times in our lives, and they memorialize more than other things, we can take a song and it can mark a moment to memorialize a person or a relationship or communicate something that feels too intimate for everyday language. It needs a special kind of language, and that's why we use music. I sing Brown Eyed Girl to Malia and to my daughter, and it's a special way that I can show my love and my care and, and how much I value them that I can't do in everyday language. It takes a song to create that kind of space. When I hear Green Day, I can not help but think about videos I made in high school with my friends um, and the, the years that I spent with those people. Music has this spiritual way of like filling space with meaning where if you think of a song, it brings up a space and that space has emotion built into it. It's like the room gets filled up with the emotion of the song. And so we, that's the way we think about our past. Um, anytime I hear Nora Jones' debut album, it is the soundtrack of my relationship with Malia. I think we listened to that album a hundred times the first year of our relationship. So I get hot and bothered every time I hear Nora Jones because it's just so like in that spot in my life. Um, and, and, then, and then over time, the, the eras shifted to Dashboard Confessional and Bluegrass Revival and Nickel Creek and Avett Brothers and Bumford and Sons. And all of those band names actually bring to mind people in my life. It brings to mind spaces and times and celebrations with people. Music is this deep part of how we're human together. Um, music lays out for us the timeline of an era. Um, for some of you, you can't hear the Stones without thinking of the 60s. If you had good Christian parents, it's Larry Norman, I get it, Keith Green, that whole thing. You can't hear the Bee Gees without thinking of the 70s, or Randy Stonehill if you had good parents. Um, you know, if it's Madonna in the 80s, or Amy Grant if you're a Christian, uh, Nirvana in the 90s, you know, like DC Talk if you're a Christian, there's, there's all sorts of, you know, correlations there. But music is obviously powerful. It brings joy, joy and inspiration. It connects us with friends. It's a gift that must be shared. But not all songs are equal. They have different purposes, and, and so much of our collective pop music culture is just vapid nonsense. It makes you sad to hear 45- and 65-year-old men extol the pleasures of sex and drugs. It's just a sad thing to hear really old guys talk about their old rock and roll days. Pop party dance mixes, they're all pulse, getting you to just move your body, as a, as a typical refrain goes. Just get out on the dance floor and dance. But there's also songs that have important meaning, 
songs that capture a political moment or a national tragedy. Um, Malia and I, the week of the Boston Marathon bombing, we, we went to the first Red Sox game after the shutdown of the city and the manhunt, and we took my brother to a Red Sox game. And while we were there, Neil Diamond, in the eighth inning, came out on the field and he sang Sweet Caroline live with 40,000 fans. I don't love Neil Diamond. <laughs> There's nothing quite special about him. And other than saving Silverman in that moment, I'll always smile when I hear the keyboard start to plunk out the opening notes of Sweet Caroline because it's an important moment in my life. There's these songs that fill up the occasions of our lives. And uh, when you look at the Psalms, there's occasions for every part of our life in the Psalms. There's songs for every single part of life. They're not all happy. They're not all sad. They're not all good. They're not all bad. They have this variety and depth that allow us to learn to speak the language of God, which is worship, through psalm. Psalm 19 is about wisdom. He talks about wisdom being a gift from God. The law of the Lord is perfect in verse 14. And Clint, we don't sing enough about how good God's law is on Sunday mornings, right? Psalm 70. He asked the Lord to come quickly to stop messing around because we need salvation. We rarely sing and, and tell God he's late, right? We've kind of taken on this approach where we, we don't really speak truthfully in our worship to God. We speak politely in our worship to God. We don't tell him what's going on inside of us. We tell him what ideally we would be feeling if we had our hearts corrected by God. We don't feel like we can be honest. You have Psalm 106 is about thanksgiving for all that God has done. Psalm 36 is about God's love being steadfast. There's many, many psalms about God's steadfast love. Psalm 23 is a poem of the reflection of how God has provided and how good he is. Psalm 25 asks God to correct us and to teach us, to bring repentance to our hearts. Psalm 34 is evangelistic. It tells the nations, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's lots of different types of songs here. Psalm 26 is a set of promises of what we will do for God and he, how we will fulfill our covenants with God. It sounds like it's a lot about us, right? Psalm 31, we see in verse 5 a line that Jesus quotes on the cross of giving up on life and trusting our future to God. He says, into your hand I commit my spirit. Jesus quotes many, many psalms in his teaching. Um, in Luke chapter 20, verse 40, we have Jesus being questioned by the Pharisees. And they, they stopped asking him questions because they were so worried about how he'd answer because he put them in a bind every time. But he said to them, verse 41, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So Jesus treats these psalms as authoritative and expressing truth about God, his character, and his relationship with us. It's not just nice songs that are sung about how we respond to God. They are true about who God is. Jesus is using the psalm as evidence that he can be both Lord and Messiah as David's heir. It's an important verse that we have in showing that Jesus knew that he was one with the Father and also fully human. 
The book of Hebrews, for example, is woven together by the Psalms. It shows us that Jesus is the Son of Man from Psalm 8, who has made, quote, for a little while lower than the angels, but though the incarnation has now crowned him with glory and honor through his resurrection and ascension. The book of Psalms is basically just littered with, or the book of Hebrews is littered with these quotes from Psalms showing us who Christ is. Matthew's gospel shows us that the Psalms are the key to how Jesus understood himself as the Messiah. Um, We see Jesus upon the cross when he's sifting his suffering. He has language to talk about his suffering before God from Psalm 22. This is something we rarely sing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was an honest song of lament and concern about if God was going to come through. Is it, are we free to sing those things? Are we free to honestly bring before God our deep concerns about where we're at? Jesus meditated on the Psalms. And, and upon what they spoke concerning himself, uh, he, he quotes Psalm 118 when he says that the stone that the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then we see throughout the New Testament, Peter he uses to demonstrate the ascension and the, the coronation of Jesus when he says, the, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus, Peter's declaring and deduces from this that all Israel assuredly knew that God had made Jesus both Lord and Christ. The New Testament is just full of these quotes and allusions and imageries and metaphors and prophecies straight from the Psalms because the songs were the folk songs of the Jewish people. And just like today, for centuries and centuries, they would gather every Shabbat, every Saturday morning for readings from the Torah and the prophets, and then they would hear together and sing together the tunes of their lives, these Psalms. They didn't have a recording industry. There wasn't much secular music around them. The psalms were the songs that they sang. The psalms were the songs of their lives. And Jesus had meditated on these day and night, and it has shaped how he entered into every situation. This is why the psalms are a vital part of the Bible, because they give us the language of God and how to approach life. There's a psalm literally for every occasion. But if worship is complaints and exaltation, if worship is exhortation and demands, if worship is thanksgiving and wisdom, if it's the wonders of God's love and the accusations of God's injustice and songs of lament and songs of good news for the nations, if it's meditations on God's word and words of prayer and supplication, then what exactly is worship if it includes all of that stuff? It sounds like we could fit literally anything under the title of worship. Most things that we do while worshiping, as Brother Lawrence would show, he would worship when he was sweeping or doing the dishes. We could put anything under this category of worship. But what is the thing that makes worship of Yahweh distinct? What makes it different than the songs on the radio? What makes a song, a terrible song that they play on KTSY, the contemporary Christian music drivel, what is so different from that to transcendent worship? There is a difference between songs about something and songs about God. What is different? I want to go to Psalm 23 today 
And I want to read this passage today to sift through that question. But I want to give you like a, an experience of the early first century Shabbat synagogue. Okay, So I'm going to play for you how they would have sung it in the synagogue as a, as a song. It's in Hebrew. And they would, they would be hearing this on, on a Saturday morning. A song of David. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What makes this worship? What makes this song being sung over us? Many of you bowed your heads and many of you changed your posture. We, we talked a little bit about how this word worship is connected to the idea of, of worthiness, of ascribing worth. And in that way, we can, we can literally worship anything. We can look at our spouse and say, you look beautiful today. You are kind and gracious. This is worship. It's ascribing worth to someone. But what makes the worship of Yahweh different is the way that we approach it. It's very, very different. This psalm that we just sang is, is a psalm of, of speaking the truth about God's position in our lives. He has this one role. He has many roles, but in this, in this song, it's giving this metaphor of his role as our shepherd. And it encompasses all the ways that God provides for us as a shepherd. He provides for our needs. He shows us where to rest. He shows us where to go to get the providence that we need of water that brings us life. Even when we're afraid and even when we're alone and even when there's dangers lurking around us in this valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear because God is with us like a good shepherd. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. Not only that, as a, as a person, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, showing that I'm set apart as one of your family. My cup overflows because of your goodness and your mercy. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm going to walk through four things that I think that we should take away from this. Um, and, and I think that I just want you to th think about what does this mean for our worship as a community. The first is this. The worship of Yahweh is different because it's ascribing worth to the king of all creation. He is the ultimate of worth. He's the ultimate of value, and he's the only one that deserves uh, ultimately our worship. We sit in the chain of all creation right below God, and so the only thing that belongs to be worshipped is the one above us. 
is the creator who made all things. The first principle of worship is there's this vast gulf separating our nature and God's nature. We are the effect rather than the cause. So when we turn and we recognize God's all-present reality, we feel humbled by how little and insignificant we are. We feel guilty because we've forgotten to worship and we've not lived in this kingdom reality. We feel this indescribable feeling to put into our words our unworthiness before God. So when we approach God in worship, it's different than other kinds of worship because it's like we're turning our face towards God. And in his face, we're seeing things as they truly are. Worship is opening our eyes and turning to God and in God seeing how things truly are in our world. This is the essential difference between the worship of God and the worship of other things. Is that in the worship of God, we understand more about what we were made for and what God is doing and how we can participate in it. Worship transforms us because we're entering into the presence of God. We, when we enter into worship, we've turned, like Bob talked about, we've turned our hearts towards God. And instead of living opposed to the kingdom, we're living in the kingdom reality. Does that make sense? So worship is literally pulling back this veil between this world and the spiritual reality and seeing things for how they truly are. That's the beginning of worship, is entering in. Now, I don't have like some secret on how to do this, but it literally starts with turning your face towards God and saying, here I am. It's not just coming in and singing the words that are on the screen because they're there. It's not just haphazardly going through the motions. It's literally turning our heart and saying, God, I'm present to you. I'm living in the reality that you are here and you're with me. So that's the first thing as we turn our face towards God. But worship is not just about being awed by the reality of God's presence. It's about moving towards God rather than away from God. So worship is us turning our faces towards God to have our true nature revealed and transformed by his presence. Worship is speaking to God truthfully about what's happening, about what we feel, even when we're angry with him and frustrated with his inaction or his slow timing. It's worship because it's in God's presence, not because of what we're saying. It is worship because rather than complaining and gossiping to others about God, We're standing before God, and we're bringing our concerns boldly before the throne of grace. Worship is about relationship. Worship is moving towards the king, still recognizing his power and his otherness, but we are in his courtroom when we worship, and the king has invited us to plead our case before him. And the only way to honor God is with this one thing. And this is, if you're going to write something down, this is it. The only way to honor the king is with truth. There's only one way to do worship wrong, and that's this. Don't bring your whole self. If you you try to fake it in God's presence, it doesn't work. If you speak only platitudes and offer only worship that you don't believe and that you don't feel, it's not worship. Worship is about bringing your whole self before God. He can handle the real you, but he can't handle the fake you. Okay? He can handle the real you, but he can't handle the fake you. If you bring your whole self, he can bring it in and transform you into who you were made to be. If you bring your fake self, you're not bringing anything at all because your fake self is nothing. 
And so God wants us to bring our whole selves before him. He's going to see through our junk, and he's going to call us out, and he's going to invite us to walk into truth. And at that point, you have the option. Are you going to enter into the courtroom of God's grace and God's presence, or are you going to walk away? But until you shed your fake self, you can't truly enter into worship. What does that mean for our worship? So it means that we don't pray with a special voice that's strained and whiny and it has the special King James these and thous and less and all that stuff. We don't pull out our theological words and think about what God wants us to say. We don't get, we're not suck-ups when we're standing before God and we're not hiding anything from him. But we tell God plain and straight what is in our hearts. He can handle the good, the bad, and the ugly, but don't hold back from God and worship. The only true worship is your whole self entered into his presence. The third is this. Worship is not an experience. Worship is not pretty music that we perform or consume. Worship is not just singing songs or being in church. Worship starts with a heart that is open to God. Psalm 139 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Worship is a discipline that shapes us over time. So like with anything, you won't be good at worshiping right away. It takes time. It takes time to learn the language of the songs. But when you show up week in and week out and you learn the songs and you learn the language and you learn to come with a heart not that's just stumbling in here hoping for something, but with a heart that's prepared and expectant of meeting and face-to-face with the one true God, then something incredible happens when we're prepared and we're honest before God. You learn to read the psalms of thanksgiving of God's everlasting love. You learn to read the psalms of reassurance and provision, of accusation, of times of injustice. When you learn the language of God, you learn to be close to God and worship. Just like Jesus, worship of his word starts to permeate how you think and see everything. When you learn the psalms, you learn the language of God. When you spend time throughout your day praying, you learn to pray with the language of David, a psalm for every single season. And so it's, it's a practice. Worship is not a, um, something that you're either great at or you don't do at all. It's something that you grow in over time by bringing your whole self to God. And the last is this. Worship is not always happy, happy, joy, joy. Lament is an appropriate response to what we see in the world today. With two mass shootings in less than 24 hours, our world needs more Lament. And needs us to speak truthfully about the reality of what we're seeing and pray, don't tarry, God, come now. We need him. So we learn to pray and we learn to lament and we learn to cry. Lament is this appropriate response to what we see in the world and it's the, the only way to do worship wrong, like I said, is halfway. So appropriate worship has many different facets. In any time of life, whether joy or pain, anguish or reflection, quiet moments or complete chaos, the prayer book of Psalms instructs us on how to approach God with honesty and with reverence. It's the guidebook to the court of the king. Um, and, And you should watch the Bible Project video that gives like some... There's some good history and structure to the Psalms that we didn't get into today. Um, But what happens over time is the more... 
The closer you get to God, the better you get at worship, the less you sound like a whiny, petulant child, and the more you sound like an assured, faith-filled follower of Jesus. Like that's what the psalm shows, is that from start to finish, there's this movement from deep concern and accusations of God to songs of praise and worship because God has come through. And so when we learn the story of God and we see the way that he is making things right and how he has assured his victory at the end, we can sing praises of faith-filled hallelujah and worship. God be worshiped because we know how God will provide for us in the end. And when we worship together each week, it's a little taste of this, of this kingdom reality. Um, you can worship on your own, and obviously Jesus did it all the time. The Psalms were on his lips, and it's what he thought about. It's what he sang. It's what he spoke to his, his followers. It wasn't just a Saturday thing for him. But when we get together on Sundays, it's a special little inletting of his kingdom reality when we worship together because us being turned towards the Father and moving towards him is what it's going to be like to enter into his kingdom age in the future. And so when we get together, we need to celebrate and just enjoy these special times. Let them shape our weeks and shape our hearts. Okay, so what we're going to do now, I'm going to invite the band to come up, and we're going to have, uh, we have a few songs afterwards, and I, I want to invite you to do some of this work as we worship. I want to invite you to, some of you need to bring, do some preparation work. Some of you need to pray, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. There's things that you cannot bring before God right now because you're afraid, and you need to crash through that barrier and bring your whole self before God. There's some of you who you show up and you worship, but you don't really enter in. And it's not just singing, but you need to bring yourself to it. And now's the time. Some of you are in a time of lament and pain, and it doesn't feel like you can really enter into worship in the midst of that, but you can. Even when you're far from God and you feel like you're hurting and you don't know what's coming next, God wants to bring his reality to your life. So what I'd like you to do during this time, we're gonna, I'm going to have the communion after this first song. I'll come up again. Um, but I, I, what I'd like to do is invite you to, to truly enter into worship as we sing, as these songs that we sing that invite the Holy Spirit and praise him for what he's done and give thanks for how he's providing for us. I want to invite you to truly enter into worship. And then we're going to have communion. And also during this time of 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 worship, there will be people available. Malia and Bob will be available in the sides or the back for prayer. And I want to invite you, if you have needs, worship is an appropriate time to bring those needs before God as a community and pray for them. So if you have um, physical ailments or relational issues or you're not sure you can trust God with concerns that you have in your life, step up and pray with someone to God honestly and invite him to come through because he wants to. He's a good father that does that. And if you want to, we have a few songs so you can go get your kids and bring them over to worship with us during this time. Let's pray. Lord God, almighty maker of heaven and earth, the one true creator who made all things and who designed all things and is transforming all things into the way that they were made to be. Lord God, we turn our faces towards you. We turn our hearts towards you. 
and let this music penetrate deep into us and open us up in ways that we can't otherwise. We sing these songs of lament, of worship, of thanksgiving, of concern, of regret, of confession, of repentance, and we pray, come Lord Jesus. As we, as we worship, as we turn our hearts towards you, let our hearts be fully in it. In your name we pray, amen.